Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 48 of Yoga Land. Today, I talked to Richard Rosen. Richard was on episode 39. You may have listened to that one. We focused on Patanjali's Yoga Sutra in that episode in the context of Richard's new book, Yoga FAQ. I wanted to have him on again to talk about the chapter on asana, because that is the focal point of so much of our modern yoga practice, and it's the longest chapter in the book. There's a lot of interesting stuff in there. We talk about why Raja Yoga has come to be thought of as different from Hatha Yoga. We talk about the original meaning of Hatha and how it's been interpreted we talk about who the original yogis were, who these wanderers were, and, and how they were considered within the context of the society at the time. And then I also got to ask Richard about his own current practice. He's been practicing, I think he said, for 33 years. And he has had Parkinson's disease for the past 15 years. And he's done extraordinarily well in terms of the progression of the disease or lack thereof, I should say. And one of the main focuses of Richard's practice is pranayama. So I got a little pranayama inspiration because you'll see I admit at the end of the show that it is my least favorite aspect of yoga practice is doing a standalone separate lie on my back or sit down and focus on my breath. I would so much rather meditate or do asana. But it's nice to hear him talk about that, that part of his practice because it's very meaningful to him. Before we get to the interview, I have another quick announcement, which is that we have, after much blood, sweat and tears, launched a little online shop. When I started the show, I created some Yogaland tanks that I sent to my guests. And whenever they appeared on social media, people would say, I want a tank. Can you send me a tank? And I did a really limited run. So I decided to start a little shop and that shop became kind of a big project. And I suddenly realized I could do like tanks or totes or heathered tees or plain tees or long sleeves or short sleeves or socks or mugs or all these things. So it's taken me months to kind of drain it back in. And we have this really nice curated selection of offerings. You can go to our website, jasonyoga.com and click on shop and it'll take you to the store and be shop. And there's just a few yoga land items and a few Jason yoga items. And it's a great way to support the podcast. Pure Yoga Singapore, Jason is coming your way soon, June 2nd through 6th for a five-day teacher training program and public workshops as well. And then he'll also be at the Asia Yoga Conference in Hong Kong, June 8th through 11th. Hong Kong is one of my favorite places in the world, and I can't wait until my daughter gets old enough to appreciate it, and then we'll bring her back there too. All right, everyone, enjoy the interview with Richard. All right, let's talk about Hatha Yoga. You have an entire chapter. Well, actually, you have an entire book about Hatha Yoga called Original Yoga. from from a few years ago, which is great. And you have a big chapter in this book on Hatha yoga and the longest chapter, the longest chapter. And one of the funny things is after working with you for so long and reading your books, I had forgotten until I reread the FAQ that the word Hatha, Hatha doesn't actually mean sun and moon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's figuratively speaking it does. And that, that goes way back, but it doesn't literally mean that. Yeah, so you de- you delineate in the book between, you know, literal the literal meaning of words in yoga and the esoteric meaning. So, can you talk us through, you know, both the literal meaning of hatha and then the figure to meaning and how it came to be? 
I'm not sure how it came to be, but um, the literal meaning is, is force or violence, really. Uh, so that literal translation of Hatha Yoga then would be the, the forceful practice. And the idea then is you storm the gates of, of, of heaven to, to get yourself liberated. The symbolic translation, and they do this with a lot of the words in the yoga lexicon, they, they split it up into its constituent syllables and they assign the syllables usually randomly different meanings and the figurative interpretations are meant to sort of supplement the literal one so for hatha yoga they they say it's the haz is the sun and ta is the moon and uh, that then um, indicates the um two sort of conflicting or, or con combating energies in, in the body the sun the solar and the lunar which is what you're supposed to bring into into um, harmony when you complete the practice so it's not clear where the origin of that interpretation i know the text were the, the, the earliest text it was mentioned in but i don't know exactly how they came to that conclusion about ha, ha and ta yeah i mean it's brilliant it, it's it's memorable <laughs> and as all taglines should be, and it does inform the practice really well. Yeah, it tells you what you're looking to do over time. Right, right. My favorite questions, because I've seen people not having the same question. I've ha seen people having the same insistence of this point of view, and I've wondered where it comes from. I've read in several old books that Hatha Yoga is preparation for Raja Yoga. Mm. And, you know, so I see people commenting on social media. I've seen it several times in the past year. Oh, well, Hatha yoga isn't real yoga. Raja yoga is real yoga because it includes meditation. Mm -hmm. Well, for one thing, Hatha yoga includes meditation. So, I mean, there's, you know, <laughs> right there is, is, is contradiction to those, to those folks who say that. Lots and lots of meditation in, in Hatha yoga, especially the kind that's been influenced by the tantric movement. The main Misunderstanding comes from, if you look in the Hatha Pradipika, which is sort of a, a, a most people call it the Hatha Pradipika, um, it's sort of a seminal text in, in, in the evolution of Hatha Yoga. It, it was came out around 1450. If you look in, in the fourth chapter, there's four chapters total in the book, there's a verse in there that says that Hatha Yoga is a preparation for Raja Yoga. You just read that superficially, you get the impression that what they're talking about is Patanjali Yoga, which is often referred to as Raja Yoga, based on what Vivekananda's book, Raja Yoga. However, the verse in detail, but with that phrase Raja Yoga in that context is it's a synonym for samadhi. So uh, what, what they're saying is Hatha Yoga is, is a preparation for samadhi, for meditation. Mm, okay. So the Raja Yoga in that verse does not refer to classical yoga. Mm. I have it here if you want me to read it to you, but. They give a list of, of words that are synonyms for samadhi, and, and Raja Yoga has to be one of them. Hmm. People are reading through the book maybe a little bit too quickly, or they don't really think about what's being said, or they don't understand, or the, maybe the, the translation isn't so isn't so good. So they, they make a mistake, and, and they say that Hatha Yoga is a, is a preparation for... Uh, in fact, right in the first part of the book, they say that Hatha Yoga is a ladder to climb to Raja Yoga on the, in early on, in the first two verses or so. But yeah, then if you look in the fourth in the fourth chapter, you'll see that Raja Yoga is being used as a, as a symptom for Samadhi. And then if I'm understanding correctly from the book, you also make the point that when Swami Vivekananda spoke at the World Parliament of Religions in the early part of the 20th century. No, the, the 93. Oh, sorry, sorry. Late, yeah. Late 19th century. 
Yeah. Yeah. Really. Okay. That you seem to think that he almost like rebranded Hatha yoga and called it Raja yoga. He did not rebrand it. He, he sort of dissed it actually. In the late 19th century, Hatha yoga was a very bad, had a very bad reputation in India with the middle classes. And what he said was that Hatha yoga wasn't very, wasn't a very spiritual yoga. Mm. And this is why people after that time fixed on how as Raja yoga as the real yoga, Hatha yoga is sort of the bastard uh, relation. Interesting. Yeah. One of the other sections that I love that I want to talk about through a little bit is where you kind of go through how a yogi's typical daily practice was. Oh yeah. And I have to say, I read this and I thought, this is like yoga camp. Like I would love to have this life. He wakes. Yeah, I guess so. He wakes up at dawn. He thinks of his deity, his Ishtadevata. He remembers his guru. He smears ash on himself. And I'm saying he, because it was just men at that time, right? Yeah, probably. I mean, you know, I'm not not the best person to be asking about this, but there are some indications in the old text that there were some women being being involved in in, in the practice, but oh, probably wow. the most common practitioner was was a male, a Brahmin male, for that matter. Right. I want I want to ask you more about the practitioner. So he goes through a sort of morning rituals, then morning practice, physical practice as well, right? Right. Pranayama, then sits in lotus and does nada yoga, which is the yoga of sound. Um, and then is it meditation after that? I can't remember. Then he goes through the midday, the afternoon, studies more texts in the evening, repeats more of the afternoon practice. Then at midnight repeats the evening practice. Yes. So I want to know, I knew they were Brahmins. I mean, I had read that they were Brahmins, but really who, who were these people? And you know, who took care of them? Like, were they a part of society? Were they outcasts to society? They had left society for sure. They, they severed their ties with their families. And I, I believe this is true. I, I, you know, maybe Mark Singleton or Mr. James Mallinson would be a better person to ask about this. But in general, they, they left they left the bosom of the family and they went off. Uh, I think it, it's a misperception to, to say they went off into the mountains and, and lived in a cave somewhere because, you know, where do they get food? And, and you know, I, it doesn't make much sense to me. So I, the, the, what they did was they went into the suburbs of, of the towns and cities, and, well, the suburbs, the, the fringes of the towns and cities, because they needed, they needed some place nearby where they get food. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They, had, they set up their little mata um, somewhere within walking distance of, of food. You know, and uh, presumably they, they, they ate very little. There's, there's a text that says you don't really eat after noon. And, you know, so um, they made one, one or two meals a day, maybe, if they were lucky. Did they live together as a group or were they completely wandering alone? Well, there was a lot of wandering involved in being a, a yogi. And you, they, a, a lot of them wandered from, this is not something that I could that, that, that really clear on, but a lot of them wandered from this pilgrimage site to pilgrimage site. And they, they kept up for the part of the year that was warm. And in the rainy season, they settled down and, you know, and lived in a certain place. But, yeah. Uh, my impression is that they were pretty fluid in what they were doing, and you know they they, they didn't stay in one place all that long. Do you have any sense of whether they were seen as an important part of 
of still of society, even though they left. Like, in other words, in Buddhism, if you are of a certain caste, you leave your family when you're young to become a monastic, and that's really well respected. Do you think it was similar to that, or were they more on the outskirts of society? I'm not clear on that myself either, but uh, certainly in the classical context, that was a particular stage you went through when you reach a certain age. You were a student, and you, then you fulfilled your duties to society. You raised a family and brought on the next generation, and then you, then you went into the forest to study. And then finally, uh, at, at the end of that study, presumably you, you'd reached a certain level of insight, and you, you, you shed everything, and you just, you just gave up the whole Megillah and uh, went off and wandered. You became a sannyasin and uh, wandered around uh, with, with, a, with your loincloth on. I remember thinking when I first learned about this, I think it was in my 200-hour training, I remember thinking like, and I was not married at the time, I remember thinking like, wow, that would really stink to like, you know, be married to some guy, you raise your kids, you have the householder life, and then all of a sudden he's like, bye, bye girl, I'm going out to the forest. Not like it was a surprise in those days, that was an expected way that, the, you know, the ashram system worked. Right. There were four periods or phases, so, you know, the women were taken care of by the next generation of men. Yeah, and then I then I have the afterthought, like years later, I'm like, well, maybe some women like it better that way, you know? <laughs> How else? What good is that? In the Hatta context, I think a lot of those guys were outcasts, and they did things on purpose to make themselves that way. Hmm. In that way, they weren't tempted to go back into the into society by being rejected by society. They were no longer influenced by its. I mean, there's very subtle ways that you'd be influenced by your culture and your society. Right. And so they became they became literal outcasts in, by the way they dress, the way they act. Um, you mentioned at one point the smearing of the ashes. Was that part of that? The ashes were had had a symbolical had a symbolic meaning that, as most of these things do, they they they, they indicated a, a sort of a a burning away of, of the the outward appearance of things. I read somewhere sometimes that they help keep them warm. They they weren't wearing any clothes, so I'm not really I'm not sure how accurate that is. But you know, it seems like the ashes may have had a practical purpose too. Mm -hmm. You know, there's one part where you talk about the noon part of the practice that really stood out to me because I hadn't seen this before, and I kind of can't believe I never noticed it in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. But it says his diet is prescribed at Hatha Yoga Pradipika, and you cite the the location. Among forbidden things are foods that are bitter, salty, spicy, hot or stale, and meat. Yeah. And, you know, this is like the, you know, constant, you know, question in the modern yoga community is, does it say anywhere that a yogi should not eat meat? And I've heard so many teachers say one or the other, and no one's ever, but no one's ever cited this to me before. Yeah, yeah there's, there's dietary regulations in, in a lot of the old texts and, yeah. Mostly you're eating, you're eating beans and things like that and, and roots. And <laughs> yeah, it says grains, some dairy products, sweets, which I think is so in interesting because it's like, these are three things that in modern culture we, you know, poo-poo, grains, dairy products, yeah. and sweets. And then, yeah, to help digestion, I suppose, he finishes his meal with some cardamom or clove or if he prefers camphor and betel leaf. Right. Yeah, that was really interesting. Well, I still think I would enjoy going to yoga camp. So maybe I will someday. All right. Let me, how it go. Let me know how it goes. <laughs> Jason will be writing to you. Bring her back. What's going on? <laughs> don't, don't blame it on me.
talk a little bit about your own practice over the years. And one thing that came up for me when I was reading was just wondering how the balance has changed for you of really active physical practice, asana versus breathing practice versus meditation, if it's changed at all. Yeah. And then also talking about your Parkinson's disease. And I can't, I don't remember how long ago you were diagnosed, but it's been a while, hasn't it? 15 years. Wow. You seem like you're doing great. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So I'm wondering if that has changed anything at all, or if you have any. Oh, yeah, well, changed a lot. As, uh, well, I've been practicing now for almost 37 years. It'll be 37 years next month. I started in Berkeley, 1980. My early practice was like very, very physical. You know, it was just, you know, typical Iyengar thing. It was just, and I wasn't married. I didn't have any kids. I didn't have any responsibility. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a real job, man. I, I worked at home. So I could do whatever I wanted to do pretty much. And I practiced twice a day, like, like you know, like a lot of those guys did. Uh, we did in those days. And I practiced, you know, the, the strength stuff in the morning, the flexibility stuff in there. Hmm. You know, I did that for, you know, my, my, my Asta practice was my whole practice for a really... For, for quite a long time, on a, you know, several years at least. And then um, when I started to see teacher training at the Iger Institute, then I was introduced to, to breathing practice. And my teacher said, uh, you know, I'm, you better breathe or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you or something like that. And, you know, you, so I did. Um, I started breathing and I was very diligent about that practice as well. So I, I, I added a third practice to the day in the morning, which is, you know, the Brahma Muhurta, the hour of Brahma when you're supposed to practice what, just at, at sunrise when the, the prana is strongest in the atmosphere and that kind of stuff. That went on for a pretty long time. Um, you know, the Asta practice was important, uh, it, but, it, you know, over the years it, it became apparent to me that uh, yoga practice, it, there's a lot more to it than just practicing asanas. Mm -hmm. I started to realize that the, the practice, to a certain extent, if you think you're practicing all the time, you, you, it feels like you're getting ready for something. Whereas if you you just integrate it into your life. There's no longer any practice and you're just doing yoga all the time. And that's, that's the way I look at it now is that I, I'm not practicing for anything um, because there's no, you know, I, I don't like to use the word path or journey because I figure you pretty much wherever you are there, there you are. What was that? Wherever you go, there you are. Something like that. <laughs> if you look, if you, according to Patanjali, you, you are enlightened right now. If you read, if you read, not Patanjali, but Vyasa's comment commentary on the first or the second sutra you're basically enlightened you just don't know it hmm. but you know there's, there's nowhere to go you're already there you just have to you just have to you know get rid of a few misconceptions so 15 years ago then i was diagnosed with parkinson's and what happens with parkinson's of course just the opposite of what you want to have happen when you do yoga practice and asana practice and that is weaker uh less balanced and stiffer so I thought that was kind of a <laughs> the irony. <laughs> the irony was pretty pretty. I thought that was pretty funny. Um, so obviously, you know, my practice changed for, on two fronts because I was getting older. For one thing, I, I started my practice when I was thirty-three or something, thirty-two or thirty-three, and so now I'm sixty-nine. And just a, a normal healthy person, the practice is going to change no matter what. You know, unless you're really crazy, you try to do things that you you did 30 years earlier, which you know, I may may maybe maybe you you do, but I, you know, doesn't seem likely to me. And then the the Parkinson's, I had to deal with that in in a in a healthy way because you, I realized early on if you if you fought it and tried to deny that you have this situation, it gives the uh, the condition a little bit more energy. It makes things worse. 
So um, I learned how to, it actually made me a better teacher, to be honest. It, it made me think about, um, because I was closing down, as far as my joints were concerned, I, I learned how to create space, uh, more space in the joints and create space in the body. That really changed the, the direction of the way I, I, I taught things. So, uh, I mean, if, if, if anything had a silver lining, it was it. Yeah. I've been very fortunate over the years. My condition has, has progressed extremely slowly. My doctor says it's been a miracle that, that, that I'm at this point and still pretty much just about early stage two, late stage one. And he says it doesn't, it's very rare. So That's I've been great. very fortunate. Everybody wants to attribute it to yoga, but I, I really don't know. What, you know, there may be a factor involved in that. But, you know, I really can't say that for sure. Yeah, you never know. Yeah, but that's that's great to hear. And then in terms of the balance of asana versus breathing versus meditation, how, did that change in the with the Parkinson's diagnosis? Well, not really. My breathing practice has become more interesting over the years. Uh, when I first started breathing in the early '80s, it was it was pretty mechanical. I, I had a schedule, and I put up on my wall, and I just followed the schedule day by day. It was okay, um, but over the years, as I've continued to do the practice pretty much every day, I've discovered that your breathing is, is pretty interesting. I mean, it's not like car crashes and, and things like that, but in the movies, but it's a, it's a very sort of engaging practice after a while, very soothing and very uplifting in a way. I don't want to use the word enlightening, but it's very uplifting. Also, what's happened is that I found out a lot of fancy digital pranayama, things like that. It isn't really necessary for me anyway. And I've found that the, the best practice for me is just to watch my breath pretty much all the time. I change things up every now and then, but my basic practice is just uh, sitting or, re- or reclining and watching and watching the breath come and go. Hmm. And I feel, I feel like that's, at, at least for me at, at this stage in my life, concerning all my physical ailments and whatnot, that, that's the best thing for me to be doing. I think you are one of the most gifted teachers I've ever oh. Thank you. <laughs> you are, and especially with pranayama. And I will just admit to the the world that of those three practices, asana, pranayama, and meditation, pranayama is the hardest one for me to do alone. It's for a lot of people. It's so hard. I just it just makes me crazy. But it didn't ever make me crazy when I did it with you. There's a lot of resistance because I I think people don't understand the, the power of, of transformative power. Right. Are doing their breathing and, and you know it really it really knocks them for a loop. The the hard part is getting past that. So when you say knocks them for a loop, do you mean sometimes people feel like I've actually taken a I took a pranayama class with Barbara Baina once, who's a wonderful she's another wonderful pranayama teacher. And I happened to do it at Estes Park in the Rockies, right? Where you're at a really, really high altitude. And I felt very, I don't know, kind of panicky and agitated afterward. Yeah. Which I know is like one of the cautions about pranayama, but it certainly wasn't the beginning of my practice or anything like that. Is that, is, do you think that's part of the resistance in people or is it just that we don't really think about, is it kind I mean, I think in some ways it just doesn't get the same airtime that asana and meditation do. First of all, it, it can be a lot more difficult in, in certain ways it, it, and a lot less uh, outwardly rewarding. I mean, it's, it's not like a good icebreaker at parties. You can't really bend over toes and things like that <laughs> a lot of students want to go too fast uh you know americans are results oriented they want to see some something coming back for the time and effort they invested 
in whatever they're doing. And it doesn't work that way mm. with breathing oftentimes. It, it could, but it, it, you, typically it takes, a, it takes a while to get it figured out. I mean, you're breathing all the time. It, you ha- it takes a certain amount of time to get some kind of perspective on your own breathing. First of all, what happens is people don't wait until they're, they've freed the breath to a certain extent. There's no such thing as, in my opinion, as breathing lessons. You can't teach somebody how to breathe. Somebody had to get out of the way of their breath. But the, the breath is a natural expression of your being, and it's hardwired into your brain. And so, you know, most people, the problems that they have with their breathing are self, self-inflicted. And it takes a little bit of attention and a little bit of time to understand what it is that you're doing to get out of your way. And oftentimes, the other thing is the things that, they're, that, that are obstructing their breathing are, are psychologically very, very sort of frightening. Mm people start to let go of that kind of stuff, then, you know, there's, there's a reaction. There's a, there, could, there can be a very violent reaction and fright, fright, fear, all sorts of things can come up when you start to let go of those holding uh, patterns. Hmm. There's all these things that are mitigating against the practice. So it's, it's, it's necessary to go slow for one thing. You know, a lot of your resistances are there in place for a reason. You're protecting yourself and it's a natural thing to do because the world is a pretty scary place sometimes. You know, it's necessary to go slow and it's necessary to be very conscious and be very, uh, be very attentive and to be ready to go backwards at times. Uh, the, the idea that you, you have to make continuous progress in, in, in your practice is, I think, it is a huge mistake. And that's, you know, Mr. Guyengar says that your practice waxes and wanes like the moon. So sometimes it's going forward, sometimes it's not. The problem with that is, you know, when people start going backwards, they get discouraged really easily. They don't understand that oftentimes that the, the going backwards, what they, what they define as going backwards is simply breakdown of the old patterns. Right. They're, they're, they're moving on toward replacing the old, the old with the new, but it takes a while to do that. And it can't, it's not always a happy, pleasant experience. That's funny. I relate everything to parenthood right now, but it, it's just like that with kids when they're going through a developmental stage. Like they go backward, they regress a little bit, just before they're about to make a great leap forward. And, and at first it's kind of confounding. You're like, what is going on? And then all of a sudden some big transformation happens and you, you see like, Oh, okay. Yoga moves forward and backward. It's a spiral. You know, you, you know, that's what happens in in asana as as well. You, you, you come to a class and it's, it's the greatest, it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. You know, you, you bend over, you touch your toes, blah, blah, blah. And after six months, everything stops. And you have to think to yourself, well, why? What, what's going on? Why am I stopped? You know, I was making good progress. And of course, you stop because you've reached a plateau that you have to sort of find your way across or through or over. And, you know, a, a lot of people get discouraged pretty easily then and they, you know, take up Tai Chi or whatever. <laughs> Which is even more subtle. So it's interesting to hear. I, I like what you were saying about pranayama. I mean, I think one of the issues it's just a different way of saying what you were saying is this, the subtlety of working with the breath and how, I mean, I know for me, it's like, I just recognize immediately in myself when you say, when you said something to the effect of like, you're not making this huge progress the way you do in asana or you're not, you know, it's like, you have to be able to be willing to sit with the subtlety. It's subtle at first and because you're, you're not used to doing it, but it, it gets more, it gets clearer as you go along. Look, um, you know, people nowadays, in, at least in California, they, they watch what they eat, you know, their food, they're, they watch what they drink, their liquid intake. 
their sleep, their relationships, all this stuff. You know, they're, they're very careful about the way they conduct their lives. But, you know, ask yourself, what's the most important thing about your life? And that's your breathing. Hmm. So, I mean, if you if you if you're concerned about your food intake and your liquid intake and your sleep and your relationships, what's keeping all that going is your is your breath. And I'm, it seems odd to me, I guess, that uh, you know you you have all these other concerns, but you don't you're not concerned at all about how you're breathing. Hmm. A lot of people use up their ener- spare energy in life just breathing, just keeping the breath going because they're so constricted psychologically and physically. So, I mean, it, it's an investment in your future. You know what I mean? To, uh, to down and breathe, and it doesn't have to be fancy, you know. I mean, it's it's, it's quite simple to be patient, and you have to be willing to um, to be regular, and you have to be willing to invest some time in in, in the practice. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, Richard. I uh, I'm gonna go crack open your one of your previous pranayama books after we talk today, <laughs> <laughs> which also is a great. I mean, did you wrote two pranayama books, right? I I have one of them. Yeah, I, there's two. It's the beginning and there's sort of the intermediate. The intermediate one's the last one. After that, you're on your own. Okay. Maybe I should go back to the beginning then. Just make it easy on myself. By the way, one more thing about meditation. I, I don't. I, I think the sitting meditation is a good idea, but I think ultimately you, 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 you should absorb it in your meditative state all the time. And that's one of the other benefits of having, having a breathing practice because in that practice, you're able to gain a certain distance from your breath and be able to watch yourself as a breather. Mm. And if you can do that during the day, it really it makes a huge difference in your life. It makes a huge difference in my life, let's put it that way. To watch yourself, be able to watch yourself uncritically throughout the day and to see what it is you're doing and thinking and feeling. It, it really makes you a more conscious human being. It may, it may not improve your behavior that much, but at least it makes you understand that when you're being an idiot, you're an idiot. <laughs> yeah, no, I believe, I mean, I absolutely believe it. It's like, you know, I went through a lot of really serious anxiety in my twenties. And the thing that helped me harness it was actually breath exercises that I would just do if I was in an anxious situation. I mean, I suppose in a way they were pranayama exercises, but I didn't do them separately alone. I would do them like if I was in the faced with the stressor. Yeah. And so, yes, it does make a huge difference to have that awareness. And I know it. I just don't practice it. <laughs> There's my admission. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> I mean, of course, I practice during asana practice. But yeah, it's different. That's a good start. It's a good start. There you go. It's a good start. All right, Richard. Well, thanks. Is there anything I missed that you wanted to, to talk about? Oh, no. As I said before, you're a terrific interviewer. Thank you. you- cover all the bases pretty well. (laughs) All right. Well, good. Well, thank you so much. Thanks again for coming back on. Give my best to that beautiful husband of yours. I sure will. I'll give him a big hug. Okay, good. All right. Okay. Take take care. Bye-bye. I want to mention that it's really worth going to the show notes today. You can go to yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 48. I'm going to publish a written response from Richard in response to the last podcast that he did, episode 39, which focused on Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. There were some readers who wrote in and felt just a little confused or disheartened by his, what he calls his slightly cynical point of view. So I tried to read it on this episode and it just felt too long in the audio format. And I just thought it would be nice for people to see it in print. 
So you can see it on the show notes page, yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 48. And of course, I'll also put a link there to Richard's book if you want to get his book on Amazon. All right, that's it for today. Until next week, enjoy your practice.